Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning. And I just honor our beautiful pastors, Natalie and Hartley, how gorgeous they are and how much we're blessed to have them. We do, yes, absolutely. They do an amazing job. I don't think we would ever know how much they do and, and how their heart is for every single person here and every family. So this morning, the topic is boundaries in communication. And I just thought communication, that sounds like I should be teaching in, you know, in a school <laughs> about communication. I remember doing that at school. But, you know, when I stopped and thought about it, it's like God is into communication. And God is about communication this way, horizontally and vertically. And ever since the fall, God has been reaching out and trying to communicate with us and making ways, particularly through his son and his spirit, to communicate to us. And how do we do that? How do we respond to that? And I know God uses us to communicate his love to other people. And in recent months, you know, maybe the last almost year now, I have seen God communicate his love through this church to the people, the new arrivals coming in from the Middle East. How he has said, I love you. I care about you. I haven't abandoned you. That's how he has communicated love to them through this beautiful church. And I say thank you, church, for that. I thank you for that. Because God is communicating through us as a church. I know the heart of God. I know that, that he is constantly trying to speak to us. And even when we're born, even tiny little babies, he's put that power to communicate. And a tiny little baby that is just born, a few days old, can communicate. And I was looking at some stuff online and I saw this bit of a documentary where this professor was actually um, studying children and babies from the moment they're born. And he was saying that they communicate through six different emotions and what he was saying about babies is that they, they communicate from the first few hours of their life through anger, through fear, through disgust, through sadness, and through interest, and through happiness. That they're actually communicating. And that's how we were created, to communicate with God and communicate with one another. And good communication, communication with boundaries, is really essential for us as we you know, work in our marriages, our families, as we do business, even in social media, it's really important to have really good communication. And most of you know my family, and, and if you don't know me, we're from Lebanese background. <laughs> I don't shy away from that. And we capture the best and the worst of the Middle Eastern culture. So in terms of communication, let me explain to you a little bit about our Lebanese communication. So Lots of Lebs love to play cards, right? It's a Lebanese. Have you ever played cards with a Lebanese family or Lebanese people? Okay, there's three, there's three rules, right? Number one, you never play opposite your spouse. That's rule number one, because if you play opposite your spouse, there is going to be silence for the next week at home. And if you're the wife and has played the wrong card, you will get no money to buy the groceries that week. And if you're the husband and played the wrong card, you will, play the, you will pay the money, but you'll get no food. That's, that's kind of rule number one. Rule number two, and I've noticed this since I was a really young girl, when my mother sets the table for the cards, you lay down thick towels on the table, particularly if it's a timber table. 
So you lay a really, really thick towel and then you lay a big blanket over the top of that and then they play cards on the blanket because when somebody wants to communicate that you've thrown down the wrong card, the knuckles go down like that. When the knuckles go down, if you've got a lovely timber table, you will find dents in your table. That's our wonderful Lebanese communication. Number three, you keep all the windows closed because the neighbours will hear the noise. That is Lebanese communication. So one time we were on holidays, I'll just tell you a quick story, and Bradley was probably about two and a bit, and Brittany was probably a couple of months old. And so we went away to the entrance where we always go, and all the realos come. So you kind of will have an apartment, and they'll have an apartment. It'll be in the same building, but there's all these apartments ruled by the lebs. And what happens is everybody wants to play cards. So one time the family was playing cards, and the noise was unbelievable. And I was trying to put the kids to bed in the other apartment, thinking, I wish they'd put the noise down. All of a sudden, the police came. <laughs> and they're knocking on the door of my uncle's apartment. And I'm thinking, what is going on? I rush out. And they knock on the door and they say, we've been told that there's a case of domestic violence here. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, they're just playing cards. <laughs> that was really bad communication. <laughs> so don't ever play cards with lebs. I just... So how do we communicate? We communicate with our words, we communicate with our emotions, our actions, our reactions. We communicate through social media, another thing. So how are we communicating? Do we have godly boundaries in our communication? Our words are really vital in the way we communicate. Have power, our words have power. And there's an old saying that <coughs> I used to say as a child, which goes something like this. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, I soon learned that that is a lie. If you have ever had a child that has been bullied or teased at school, you will know that words can actually damage. And a child that is, that is experiencing being teased or, or being ridiculed by other children or words spoken over them will remember that many, many years into their adulthood. And not long ago... At, at work, we, ha we were kind of having a, a meeting, and one of my colleagues actually said to me, he said to me, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get so teased about having big ears at school that the minute I left the public school and went into the, into the um, private school, I, I let my hair grow. I grew my hair until I was way into my 40s because I wanted to cover my ears. I didn't want anybody to see my ears. Now, that was spoken over him when he was a young child, yet he remembered it for many, many, many years. And he said, the only reason I cut my hair is because I was going bald. Otherwise, I would have always wanted to hide my ears. Words have power to damage. And I think we need to remember that. And it reminded me, when Mick had his heart attack in 2013... The doctor kind of pulled me aside um, one day after he, he was in the hospital. And the doctor said to me, um, Rhonda, you know that Mick's heart has been attacked. And, you know, when the heart gets attacked, there, there is damage. And what happens is that the muscle gets weaker. And there's part of the muscle that's not quite the, working the way it should work. And I really believe that when we actually say words over people, that we do something on their inside, that we can do some sort of damage that actually weakens them on the inside, yet hardens them on the inside. And we have to be really careful to have strong boundaries in the way we communicate our words. 
In Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech at all times be gracious and pleasant, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to answer each who questions you. Seasoned with salt. Sometimes we season our words with hot chili, with cayenne pepper, and we leave burning sensations in people. That's not good communication. It's not good communication. You know, there's a saying that says we need to leave a good taste in people's mouth. That's why flavor, flavor in our words, seasoned with salt. And you know, Jesus, our Lord, was so amazing at this. He was the finest example of everything in communication. And so there was a beautiful story where he he just was presented with a situation where he could have used words to bring judgment and he chose grace. And I believe we're all called to use words in the same way. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees, early in the morning, it says, Jesus early in the morning was in the temple teaching, which is what you do when you love the Lord. He's early in the morning, like us, in the temple. And he's teaching. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees come in early in the morning. They find this woman in adultery. And they come in and they throw her right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. They want to make a mockery of her. And they actually want to trap Jesus. And so let's just read from verse 5 what it says. It says, Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman to death. This is the Pharisees telling Jesus. And they want to trap him. They say, So what do you say to do with her? What is your sentence? Verse 6, They said this to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. He was slow to respond. That wasn't in the Bible, mind you. However, when they persisted in questioning him, he straightened up and said, He who is without any sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. They listened to his reply and they began to go out one by one, starting with the oldest ones until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. So Jesus ended up standing up and saying to her, where are they that accuse you? And she said, they're gone. And he said, you go and sin no more. How beautiful was the way Jesus responded to that situation. And they listened. I love that, that they listened to what he said. They didn't just hear what he said. They actually listened. So it impacted them. What he said impacted them. He didn't shout. He didn't accuse, he didn't fight, he didn't judge, he didn't even plead her case, he did none of that. He actually asked them to judge. He was gracious to both parties. I believe he was gracious to the Pharisees as much as he was to the woman. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. He was gracious. His words were seasoned with salt. He was pleasant and he knew exactly how to answer. And I believe that him stooping down He took a moment to pause and think about what he was going to say. He waited and he thought about what he was going to say. There are lots of things that say, you know, he wrote things and whatever. I don't know, but I know he took a moment that he did not respond quickly. He waited. And boundaries like that help us to keep our words seasoned with salt. And what are some of those boundaries that we can put in place to make that happen for us when we're responding to things? Well, I really believe it begins with our thought life. And we need to program our thoughts to bow to Jesus and to align themselves with the Word of God, to take every thought captive 
And I believe Jesus paused, paused. He paused before he responded. You know, how can I reply with wisdom and with grace? In Philippians 4, 8, it says, Finally, believers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and worthy of respect, I love whatever is true, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings peace, whatever is admirable and of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think continually on these things and center your mind on them and implant them in your heart. Our mind and our heart are connected. And that's why the Bible says in Matthew 12, 34, it says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What is in your heart? What is in your mind? What is in my mind? What is in my heart? I need to stop and reflect on that. They're the boundaries that help us to communicate well, to communicate in a godly manner, to communicate Christ's love, even in the most difficult situations, the most difficult conversations. Because once the words are out, we can never take them back. Even though we say, oh, I take that back. Actually, they're already out. I've already heard them. They've already impacted my heart. You can't take them back. Even if you say you take them back, they can't go back. They've already gone out. So we need to filter that already. I need to filter that. I always tell myself, stop, think. I need to filter that. I saw a post on Instagram the other day, and it was by Winston Churchill, and it said, we are masters of the unsaid words but slaves of those we let slip out. What are we letting slip out? We have to be thoughtful on that. We have to think about that. What about emotions? I tell you, I know all about emotions in my culture. It's all about emotions. And in in ministry, many times I have actually had to minister to people about emotions. And I've seen so many times that the emotions destroy people's relationships. Because emotions are designed to help us to navigate, not to control our lives. We're not, to, we're not meant to be running on our emotions. And, you know, many people I've ministered to over, ministered to over the years <clears throat> allow their emotions to control them and their words and their behaviours always come out of how they're feeling. Now, emotions are very important in our functioning. God put them there for a purpose, but they're not the centre of our lives. You know, the truth of God needs to be the center in our life. Everything else is on the outside. How many times we need to turn the volume down on our emotions? I always tell myself that when something happens and I'm I'm kind of quite emotional about something, I need to tone it down and look for the truth. Otherwise, it's distorted for me and I respond out of a place that is not inside truth. I'm running on my emotions. So we need to turn our emotions down. We can't let that be the highest volume in our life. The Word of God has to be the highest volume in our life, and we need to be following that. Because, for example, sometimes if somebody's angry, like I remember I used to have a boss, and if he was angry, everybody knew about it. If we walked into the office, it's like, oh my gosh, we're treading on eggshells. He is angry today. If he's happy, oh wow, we're going out to lunch. He's happy today. (laughs) How do you live like that? Up and down, up, and there has to be the truth right across the center. We have to live in that area. We can't be there and there and there and there running on our emotion. I've seen families destroyed because the mum or the dad are quite moody and then the kids have to respond and then the parent will say, and I've heard this with my own ears, the parent will say to the child, well, that's it. You've made me angry. Now you're going to cop it. You've made me angry. Why is the child responsible 
for your lack of control of your own emotions. The child can't own your behavior. You need to own your behavior. It's not the child's fault that you're angry. You might get angry. You've got to think, what's the truth here? What do I do here? Let's, let's decide outside of that anger. Because anger is designed to help us. That sort of says more about the parent than it does about the child. And anger is something that when you're two, you can probably throw yourself down on the floor and kick and scream and that's okay. But it's not really healthy when you're 22 or 32 or 42 to be doing that. So being angry is not a sin. God uses our anger for the benefit of others, not for their detriment. I just want to say that again. God uses our anger for the benefit of others, not for their detriment. It's what you choose to do when you're angry that can be sin. The Bible says, Ephesians 4, 26, be angry at sin, not be angry and sin. It says, be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at an ungodly behavior, yet do not sin, do not let your anger cause you shame, nor allow it to last until the sun goes down. That's what anger's for. It's to bring things to the light that ought not to be so injustices. And I love, I love that verse, sin, immorality, behavior that's not right, and injustice. And I know Nat and I were so affected by the injustice done overseas. I was angry. I was angry because I feel connected to those people. I was angry because I speak the same language. But that anger got filtered into, let's see what we can do about that. What can we do? I'm angry about that. That's unjust. That's unjust. What can I do about that? And so through that anger, God has opened up a door for our church to serve these beautiful people. That's what anger's for. Did Jesus get angry? Yes, my oath, Jesus got angry. Did he sin? No, he never sinned. <laughs> I'm glad you think that's funny. <laughs> he never sinned. He did get angry. I don't think there's anyone that lives in that part of the world that doesn't get angry. <laughs> he did get angry. So Matthew 21, 12 to 13, it says this, And Jesus entered the temple grounds and drove out with force all who were buying and selling birds and animals for sacrifice in the temple area. And he turned over tables, the tables of the money changers, who made a profit, exchanging foreign money for temple coinage, and the chairs of those who were selling doves for sacrifice. He, Jesus said to them, It is written in Scripture, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus was angry. People were buying and selling things for ridiculous prices. It was almost unlawful. I read one theologian was sort of saying that was unlawful. It reminded me when Brad and I and Brittany went to see Adele, and I think we bought three drinks and, and some hot chips, and it cost us $40. I think that's, how it, that's what it was like for Jesus. He was going there and seeing these ridiculous things happening, and he's saying, no, that's, that ought not to be so out you go, you're not going to be here. It was not anger towards something someone had done to him. It was for his zeal for the house of God. That's the difference. It wasn't about him. It was not about him. It was about the house of God. And I think that's what we need to be mindful of when we're dealing with our own emotions. Sometimes when we're communicating through anger, it's really hard to establish truth. And the Bible gives us clear boundaries. Be slow to anger. Don't be hot-tempered. And God is, himself is slow to anger. 
In Psalm 103.8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in compassion and loving kindness. And I think for us, we need to take hold of that. We need to be like God, be like Jesus was. James 1.19, we're commanded to, to be that way. It says, Understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to hear. Be careful. Be a careful, thoughtful listener, slow to speak, a speaker of carefully chosen words and slow to anger, patient, reflective and forgiving. Very clear boundaries. The boundaries are right there, quick to listen and slow to respond. And our actions and our reactions have a lot of power. Many times when I've actually reacted, um, maybe without thinking, when I've been very quick to, re to react, they're the times that I've re regretted my response. And I think it's slow to anger, slow, wait, do what Jesus did, just pause and think about what it is we're doing. I love the story of Abigail and David and Nabal in the Bible in Samuel, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. I love that story because, you know, sometimes our reactions can completely change the destiny. We can change our own destiny, we can change the destiny of other people's lives through the way we respond. And I think sometimes we forget the power that we have in our communication, in how we respond. In the book of Samuel, there's a beautiful story where Nabal is approached by David's servants and, and they're sort of saying, look, you've got all this produce, we've been good to you, can you give us something? They were in the wilderness and they needed food and they needed provision. And of course, he looked and he said, you're liars, I don't know who you are, I'm not going to give you anything. And off they went. And then, and then David said, you have repaid me evil when I have been good. And he was really angry. He wasn't going to stop and think. He just got on, the, on his horse and he said to his men, we're going to go. We're going to kill every single one of them. There will not be a child left in, in this house in the name of Nabal. We are going to kill everybody. But of course, Abigail heard this. And how did she respond? She didn't tell her husband what she was going to do because she knew she was so discerning. She just loaded up all her animals with you know, cakes and sultanas and olives and whatever it is that they, they take. And off she went to meet David. And it says this when she met him. It says in 1 Samuel 25, 27 to 28, it says, Now this gift which your maidservant has brought, my Lord, let it be given to the young men who accompany and follow my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a secure and enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. She took the blame for something she didn't even do. What a wonderful, mighty woman. Her response was perfect. And then David said to Abigail in verse 32 and 35, he's, he said this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me this day. And blessed be your discretion and discernment. And blessed be you who has kept me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself my, by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, most certainly by the morning light, there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. So David accepted what she had brought to him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and have granted your request. How beautiful is that? She completely diffused a situation. She changed the destiny of her own family. She saved lives by her response. She took it upon herself to be discerning and discreet and she did the right thing. Our responses have power. They can completely divert 
our destiny. And I think we need to remember that. I just want to talk quickly on social media. I'm not a fan, I must say, and I apologise in advance for anyone that has wanted to follow me and I've not known how to do that. I'm so sorry. It's not even worth following me because I don't really post anything because I don't know how. So I'm really, really sorry. The other day, last Sunday, I took a photo and tried to post it. It took me half an hour. And if you asked me now to do it again, I would have no idea. So I apologise. But social media, WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, Snapchat, none of that was around when I was growing up. Actually, on my 12th birthday, I got an Olivetti typewriter. That was really technology. I know, sorry. <laughs> but it's opened up this whole new culture of communication. You know, personally, I, I, I can look at these things that kind of you just roll up and you look at pretty pictures and you read some stories and that's really great. But you know what astounds me is that you'll see like Channel 9 will say five people died in a head-on collision and then there's 5,622 likes. And I think, how can you like that? That's awful. It's horrible. So I'm yet to adjust to the concept of all of that. So why would bad news be something you'd like? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. So, and <laughs> so I look at stuff and, I, and, you know, the people commenting on it, you know, people kind of writing things down. You know, I noticed that, that when I first look up and it comes up, it says, good evening, Rhonda, what's on your mind? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what's on my mind. <laughs> There's a good reason why people can't read our minds. There's a very good reason why people cannot read our minds. God does not want you to know what I'm thinking. You don't want to know what I'm thinking. So it's a good idea to just think twice before you kind of venture on that adventure. And what's really, really amazing is that people actually post things, and I've read comments that I think, I wonder if that person was standing right in front of you, would you really say that? If you had that person, that man or that woman or whoever, standing right there in front of you, would you speak like that? Would you let them know what you're thinking at that point? I don't think so. There are things that ought not to be said. Matthew 18, 15 says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens and pays attention to you, you have won back your brother. In private. I thought that was really interesting. So if somebody does or says something, even if he's not your brother, I really suggest that we do that in private. It's really important. I found it very interesting in that verse. Just before that verse, Jesus is talking about leaving the 99 to go after the lost one. And what this verse is saying, if you do that, you'll win your brother. Because we don't want to push people further away. We want to win. If they're sinning, they need to be won back. And we're not going to win them back by telling them what's on our mind. They need us to approach them and speak with them. And that's the, the danger of communication on social media. Do we have boundaries in place in our own life to help us communicate? I want to encourage us to 